Hello? Hello and welcome to the Disney Vaultcast, the show that examines every single movie in the Disney Vault. This week, we're going under the sea to talk about 1989's The Little Mermaid. Under the sea, under the sea, darling, it's better down where it's wetter, take it from me. I am your host and conductor, Aiden Simons, and who is here with me this week? One of Ariel's best friends, Amber Mori. Oh, you're best friends with her? How come they didn't show you in the movie? I'm pretty sure that she said I was her friend when we met her in Disney, so. Okay, <laughs> that's true. I forgot about that. Um, but yeah, we're talking about The Little Mermaid, one of the most important films, both for Disney and cinema and the animation medium as a whole. Obviously, Amber, you're the one who picked this film. We are going to get into our personal histories in a bit, but why did you pick The Little Mermaid? So why The Little Mermaid is my favorite, just kind of, I actually like took notes before I rewatched it because I was thinking like, what was it about this film that I remember that I like related to? Um, and I think it was like a lot of just like Ariel has this kind of like desire to explore this world that she doesn't know. Um, and I was like a very explorative person. So I kind of related to her on like this there's so much out there and I want to know what there is out there. Also, I knew about like the history of it and like the original fairy tale was so much creepier. So mm-hmm. I kind of liked both the Disney version and the original fairy tale was based on. Yeah, that's definitely a recurring theme, Disney adaptations of fairy tales. Like, I mean, obviously, like the fairy tales are a lot darker than the film. And we're going to kind of get into like comparisons a little bit later. And we talked about why you picked this film, but um, can you go a little bit more to your personal history with this movie? Obviously, it came out before either of us were born, but what is your history with The Little Mermaid? So I definitely had the little mermaid on vhs as a mm-hmm. child because Same. um it came out early enough obviously that it was on vhs and i had the whole pile of disney movies like if you can imagine mm-hmm. like before probably like mid 2000s like every disney movie that came out that was on vhs i had it in a pile <laughs> and there were two that like i probably wore out the most and it was the little mermaid and hercules and like i don't know what it was but like my brother and i were okay with watching these two over <laughs> and over and over so they were definitely the like least dusty in our pile of vhs tapes it's just one of those things that when you're a kid in the late 90s and early 2000s like you just have vhs's of these things and you watch them over and over and you know, you can like tell when a VHS has been used a lot yeah. because you get those little scratches in the middle of the movie mm-hmm. and stuff like that. Yeah, it definitely had stuff like that. Yeah, we all, I feel like everyone has that like one VHS that just you wore out because you watch so much. I, I wish I knew what mine was. It's probably going to be something, it's probably something stupid. But yeah, we also had it on VHS for, as, um, for my personal history. We didn't have, I think we had like a good amount I always I I know like we had just a bunch of Disney VHSs we didn't have everyone but we had a, a few of them and the little mind was definitely one of them and as I learned during research that's apparently a hot commodity the VHS when it came out like it was like hard to find um cool. yeah and I remember watching like this is one of the movies I have the strongest memories of watching like I know we had ones like Snow White, Bambi, Dumbo, The Lion King, Hunchback and Notre Dame but yeah. this was one of the ones I had like I have the most vivid memory of and I remember I used to be scared of this movie specifically the scene where Ursula became big and <laughs> that film like I always scared me as a child and I don't know if that really turned me off from it but I just remember it all, I mean, it literally always was a part of our lives, but I just remember being a part of my life specifically because we had that VHS copy. Like I can picture the VHS cover to this day. Yeah, same here. And like, it's so funny. Like, I think that Ursula didn't creep me out as much as I feel like she probably should have. But Mm -hmm. um, the scene that like always comes to mind is the kiss the girl scene where like Sebastian is floating around and he's like 
telling all the animals what to do. Mm-hmm. Like, I don't know what it was, but about that scene, like it connected with me. It's probably the music and like the animal combination, but yeah, yeah, I definitely remembered that scene very, very vividly. And then like them rolling into like the the weeds are kind of like coming down from the trees. Uh huh. Yeah. I mean, I could say that is like the most iconic song from like scene from that movie but I feel like all the musical sequences in this movie are like iconic in that way and yeah it is really it that that actually is like probably one of the better scenes Let's go a bit into the history of this film because there is quite a bit here. I may not be able to go through this entire outline if we want to keep a reasonable time frame on this. But The Little Mermaid, as we mentioned earlier, was a fairy tale uh, made in 1837 by Hans Christian Andersen. As we alluded to, it is much different than the Disney adaptation, much darker, quite tragic, not a happy ending. At least some of these fairy tales got happy endings. This one did not. It, its history with Disney actually goes back to the era of Walt Disney to the 1930s. Famously, he had a lot of ideas for whatever his follow-up to Snow White was going to be. He was going to make a package film, which is, if you don't know, is a just a compilation of many shorter stories within one big package. And he was interested in making a package film of stories based on Hans Christian Andersen's stories, including The Little Mermaid. And development started on it sometime after Snow White but as we all know that nothing ever came of that I think they made a short based off the ugly duckling but besides that nothing came of that like a lot of film projects in general just nothing came of it it kind of fizzled out got quietly canceled and he moved on to the next projects but like so many Disney animated films just because something's canceled doesn't mean it's gone forever and we now must flash forward to the 1980s which Disney as a company is not doing well we are only less than 20 years from the death of Walt Disney who died in 1966 and the company was still struggling to find its footing after the death of Walt, especially in terms of its animated films. Uh, there was a backlog of projects that Walt had started work on, but never got to complete. That kind of got them through the rest of the 60s and the 70s, but the 80s, especially a lot of the original staff members were either dying or leaving, and they were just trying to, they were very much a company trying to figure out where they were going next. And no part of the company was hit quite as hard as the animation studio, which, to put it lightly, was doing bad. Disney as a company is fielding multiple hostile takeover attempts from, I think Comcast was one of them, but Disney was in serious danger. So in 1984, Michael Eisner came in as CEO and he brought one Jeffrey Katzenberg to head the film studio. And unfortunately, they came right as Disney was about to release its biggest flop ever the black cauldron which failed spectacularly at the box office and is just not a good movie i don't know if you've seen it it's so bad yeah. i remember watching that in like the hair salon as a kid oh <laughs> of all places yeah i really want to do a podcast on this at some point because it's such a it is such a fascinating film that is not good and but it has a lot of history to it like i just watched it oh, a couple months ago and I mean, it's a beautifully animated film, and so it just shows that, like, these people still have artistry and talent, but the film was bad, and it failed at the box office, like, really bad. So badly that Eisner was seriously considering shutting the animation department down, and other factors that contributed to this include, you know, increased focus on live-action films, which really ramped up in the 80s focus on theme parks because Disney World was chugging along and we are only a couple years off the opening of Epcot and Disney is also recently investing in television animation which is both a cheaper and potentially more lucrative venture than traditional feature animation which is can get quite expensive. Disney animation was in serious danger of shutting down. It's hard to imagine that now considering how massively successful it is but there's they're they're in serious danger of just getting shut down completely however thankfully the release of 1986 the great mouse detective while not a major blockbuster hit 
that The Little Mermaid was, was enough of a hit financially and critically to restore some sort of faith and goodwill into the animation studio. And that film was directed by John Musker and Ron Clemens, who we will talk about in a second. One of the directors, Ron Clemens, it was around this time of production where he got interested in adapting, you guessed it, The Little Mermaid as an animated film for Disney. Also around this time, uh, Katzenberg, who was, as you said, headed the film department, decided to shift Disney animation to a yearly release schedule. Normally, they would release films every two to four years because... Um, I don't know if you know anything about the process of making animated film, but it is a long and hard process. So they released films every two to four years, but Katzenberg decided to ramp up to a yearly production, which means they had to increase staff significantly. Like they weren't working with the technology we had, right? They were working with like 80s technology. Yeah. I mean, even today, making an animated film is like hard. Like, I mean, you see with like Frozen and Frozen 2, which makes most sense, but Frozen 2 just came out six years after the first one after their yeah. biggest hit. So even now, like it's a it's a long process. The first film released under this new release model was 1988's Oliver and Company, which is a fine movie. I mean, Billy Joel, who doesn't like a good Billy Joel soundtrack? But a more important film released in 1988 was a little film called Who Framed Roger Rabbit, which was a live action animated hybrid, which was both a major financial and critical success. Have you seen this movie, Amber? I love Who Framed Roger Rabbit. So good. You not like it? Oh no, I love it. I oh, I absolutely Oh no, I absolutely love that movie. It is truly one of the best films ever made. One of my favorite films ever made. And a lot of people really liked it. It made a lot of money. And importantly, it did renew interest in animation and feature animation in the audiences, which helps set the stage for the release of The Little Mermaid. We got to go back a little bit more to 1985 and Katzenberg is holding what was called a gong show where different members of the animation team pitched their ideas and Katzenberg basically rejected them or accepted them. So it's here where Clement's first pitches idea for a Little Mermaid film, unfortunately, it was rejected because of all things, Disney was developing a sequel to the Tom Hanks film Splash. Yes. Are you Splash? Splash, the movie where Tom Hanks falls in love with a mermaid, now on Disney Plus. Yeah, that's that we could have gotten a world where the little mermaid never existed because of Splash 2. (laughs) That's so sad. (laughs) I don't like that idea at all. (laughs) It's like insane to like find out all this history behind these things. When I was like reading through this, I was like, I didn't know any of this coming up to this. Thinking that like in 1989, Little Mermaid might not have come out because of something like Splash 2 is just breaking my mind a little bit. I mean, any project that even gets to release, just when whether it's like film or TV is kind of a miracle. Like there's so many factors working against it being made at all. So anything we get, it's basically kind of a miracle. But obviously the sequel went nowhere and Katzenberg eventually reversed course and approved uh, the pitch for a Little Mermaid film. And while working on this, the team managed to find work that was done back on that aborted 1930s project. And coincidentally, it made a lot of changes to the story that the this film's team was thinking about making. So it's just kind of a coincidence. Like I said, no idea ever stays dead in the Disney realm and the world. Production is in full force on this project, and this film, interestingly enough, was the last Disney animated film to use hand-drawn, hand-painted cells. There might have been, like, a different Disney animated film, like, lesser, like, tier, but this was the last Disney feature animated film that used hand-painted cells, which means it's the last one you can actually, like, buy cells of. I mean, I mean, the chance of being able to buy a cell from this movie is, like, impossible, but after this movie, they switched to digital ink and paint, and, I mean, eventually they just stopped making 2D animation in general, but that's a different story, so this is kind of the end of an era while also being the beginning of a new era for Disney animation in a way. Some notable names on the project include, as mentioned before, directors Ron Clements and John Musker. I think I'm pronouncing those names right. Apologies if I'm not. Both joined Disney Animation soon after they finished college, and they worked under Disney legend Frank Thomas, who was one of Walt's nine old men who are basically Walt Disney's core team of animators. They worked on basically all of his animated films for a certain period of time. They are like they are like literal legends in the animation community. The two met while working on 1981's The Fox and the Hound, which whenever I get to make that podcast, there is a lot of history there, not to tease anything. A lot of staff on that team just left Disney while that film was being made. 
Seriously? and just went to a different studio yeah it's crazy mm-hmm. they said the 80s was wild for disney they it's a miracle they made it through the two of them started working on the black cauldron before leaving to direct the great mouse detective which as we saw and as we talked about was a hit a modest hit but still a hit nonetheless which led them to direct The Little Mermaid. And they have since directed some of Disney's most successful animated films and most notable, including Aladdin, Hercules, Treasure Planet, The Princess and the Frog, and most recently Moana. I mean, they are probably some of Disney's top tier talent at the time. Like, it's kind of funny because their dream project was Treasure Planet, which was a major flop for them. And basically Aladdin and Hercules are basically... Disney telling them, oh, we'll let you make this treasure island in space movie if you make these films for us. And it's just kind of crazy how they weren't able to make like any project they wanted even after making The Little Mermaid. I love all five of these films. Yeah, they they were kind of like Disney saving grace for a while. They made, I mean, they made some of their best films. Musker retired from Disney in 2018 after a long career at the company. And as far as I can tell, Clements is still there. I don't know. He hasn't made anything. Neither have made a project since Moana or directed a project. So as far as I know, he's still there. But uh, I'm, maybe I'm wrong. Other names include Alan Menken and Howard Ashman, who made the music for this film. At the time when they signed on for this project, they were coming off the success of their off-Broadway show, Little Shop of Horrors. I'm sure you've heard of it. Um, Very good show, very good music in it. Menken and Ashman wrote the songs together while Menken composed the score. And the two of them being involved in this film was really like kind of foundational for both this film and Disney in general because under their direction is when the film kind of turned into a Broadway style musical I mean obviously other Disney films especially like during their Vault Disney and with movies like Oliver and Company were musicals but this turned the animated musical into more of a Broadway style where songs very much propelled the story and conveyed the emotions of the characters and basically it set the template for the films moving forward like basically every Disney animated musical from this point on has followed this formula and one particular development that Ashman was responsible for was developing the character of Sebastian who originally was envisioned as more of like a stuffy British type butler it was at Ashman's suggestion that Sebastian become a more Jamaican style composer crab which that kind of influenced the rest of the music moving forward music in the film kind of has that little bit of island flair to it so again it's kind of these small things that change that kind of just influence the whole project and kind of just steamroll and you know make the film what it is I don't know how but I know something's starting right now Gone with the music, one of the most famous stories from production involves um, Ariel's signature and actually only song in the film, Party of Your World. Rather infamously, Jeffrey Katzenberg, who is a petty asshole who and tragically will be mentioned a lot of times here he wanted the song cut from this film and he like seriously threatened to cut it because it did not test well with children of all things because they were getting restless in the movie theater in the test screening and the staff basically had to had to beg him and like contest to like him to keep it in because i mean it is hugely important to ariel's character development and moving the plot forward yeah, and it's, it's just one of the most important songs. Like, are you kidding me? I know. It basically, like, I mean, imagining this film without this song, it kind of just, like, doesn't work. The film does not work without that song because you don't get her true, like, inner thoughts and, like, why she wants, like, what she wants out of life. You don't really get that if you don't have that song. As the people who made the music for the film, Mencken and Ashman were really had a heavily involvement in the success of both this film and the Disney renaissance that followed. They set the template for every Disney movie musical moving forward. And especially in the renaissance, I mean, all the major Disney films of the 90s, I think all of them were musicals and it's because of this. And tragically, Ashman passed away during the production of Beauty and the Beast due to AIDS complications. He did write the songs for Beauty and the Beast and Aladdin really was like his 
passion project. So it is kind of a tragedy that he never got to see that come to fruition. Thankfully, though, Mencken is still around and he has continued to write songs for countless film projects, both Disney and otherwise. So I just listed some of his films he's wrote songs for, uh, including Beauty and the Beast, Aladdin, Hunchback of Notre Dame, Enchanted, and Tangled, among so many other films. They truly are like foundational to this film success and the success of Disney as an animation studio. Yeah, 100%. One final person I want to shout out is Glenn Keane, who was an animator at Disney Animation, and he was the lead designer of Ariel on this film. So the iconic design of Ariel, you have him to thank. And just a little fun fact, originally executive wanted Ariel to be blonde and this animation staff persisted that they want her to be red hair because they said it contrasted better to her green tail, which also, fun fact, the green of her tail was made specifically by the paint department. So like her tail color was like a hue created specifically for this movie. That's so cool. And yeah, yeah obviously like red and green are a contrast to each other. So that's cool. Yeah. And I think I just especially as a character it makes her stand out too, because you already have two blonde princesses with Cinderella and Aurora and then you get Rapunzel later on and it just makes her stand out more distinctively and I I mean obviously didn't have the Disney princess brand at this time but when you have a lineup of characters it just it's better it's a smarter business decision to have your characters look distinct and I think having three blonde characters really wouldn't have worked out that way. Yeah, yeah. And she doesn't, she wouldn't be as like iconic, I feel. She's only one of two, right? Like it's only her um, and Merida from Brave, right? Yeah, Merida, I mean, not technically a Disney princess, but Anna from Frozen as well. But like her just like bright red hair just makes her stand out because it's not a natural shade of red like Merida's is. It is just this like stark red hair and just really makes her stand out, especially against the blue of the water too. I think the blonde probably would have looked good, but I think it's just so much more striking against the blue backgrounds. I think that like red was like a big part of who her character is. So Yeah. Keen followed up on his work in The Little Mermaid by working on the animation of lead characters in Beauty and the Beast, Aladdin, Pocahontas, and Tarzan. So definitely one of the big players in Disney animation. But he did leave Disney in 2012 after stepping down as director of Tangled due to health issues. And interestingly enough, he hadn't directed a full featured film until 2020 with the Netflix film Over the Moon, which is a very good movie. I do recommend it, but it's kind of crazy to think of this major force in the Disney animation never got to direct his own film for the studio. I mean, obviously he was going to direct Tangled, but he stepped down to that, which is what it is. Like he is responsible for so many of these iconic characters that we just know and love to this day. With the voice cast, interestingly enough, there are no major stars in this cast, which kind of was par for the course for Disney. It really was with Aladdin that Disney started to go more and more into hiring big stars for its films. But here you have primarily like stage actors, people who have established careers, but no major stars, um, including Jodie Benson, who was, again, primarily a stage actress. And... Pat Carroll's Ursula, who just completely sells the role as Ursula, but she was not the first choice to play Ursula. They originally wrote the part for Golden Girls actor B. Arthur, who, what I can understand, her agent didn't even show her the script because they didn't want her playing a witchy character because she is an older actor in Hollywood. And, you know, that stereotype. That's so wild. I know. Can you imagine B. Arthur being Ursula? I, I, I feel like... No, I think she probably would have done a good job, but I mean, but Pat Carroll just completely owns this role and it's, you can tell she's having so much fun playing her. It's just who I associate with Ursula and like, it's been like my whole life. So imagining as someone else just seems kind of wrong right now. They also originally cast Broadway actor Elaine Stritch, who left the film over disagreements over the performance of Poor Unfortunate Souls, which, you know, again, probably for the best. Also, I found out that Roseanne Barr auditioned for Ursula, thankfully not cast, but thank God we don't have to live in a world where Roseanne is Ursula. No. (laughs) Yes. When designing Ursula, they based her off the drag queen divine. And I mean, Ursula is a total drag queen, just the way she acts, the way she looks, the way she performs. The way she performs, the way she does anything. She's such a drag queen. Yes. I think we're going to talk about this later, but like Ursula is one of Disney's like greatest, I think not even just villains, one of greatest characters. 
yeah I love Ursula like I have a lot of notes on her more than I realized that I think I would have like I was like you know like when you're like a kid you're like enamored with the main character because Mm -hmm. you're like want to relate to like the main person but now I like see Ursula and I'm like she's so badass and honestly she just wants a pretty voice right yeah (laughs) I mean it's she's like kind of the perfect villain the way that she is campy and theatrical and over the top but she also still is threatening and menacing and her plan isn't bad like it theoretically shouldn't have gone wrong it only went wrong just by pure like happenstance exactly yeah I think it I I think it was a perfect plan she was being fair to Ariel she's like you got three days man yeah and Ursula also kind of set the template for other Disney movies and that she got her own song which was the first I believe the first for a Disney film um Radigan and the Great Mouse Detective did get his own song but nothing compared to Poor Unfortunate Souls and every villain following that basically got their own big show-stopping number and I think the Disney villain song has been become one of the more iconic types of Disney song I mean Disney villains kind of don't exist as they are now especially with films like Moana and Frozen but Ursula really did set the template for the 90s Disney villain in a major way yeah I agree so The Little Mermaid released on November 17th 1989 and instantly received critical acclaim and box office success. Jeffrey Katzenberg originally thought this film could make $100 million at the box office. It didn't make it quite. It eventually did make it due to like re-releases and all that, but it did make $84.4 million in its initial run, which was a box office record for an animated film. It was Disney's first major box office success in over a decade, and this film was kind of a gamble because the last fairy tale released by Disney Animation was Sleeping Beauty in 1959, which was a major failure at the box office. Despite being potentially Walt Disney's like greatest animated film ever made, it was a failure at the box office, and because of that, along with Katzenberg thinking it would be a girls movie so it wouldn't be a hit at the box office um it was kind of a gamble in a way not only did it get critical acclaim and box office success it did win two oscars for best original score and best original song for under the sea it also received another best original song nomination for kiss the girl i mean honestly you could have had all the nominees could have been from this movie and Mm -hmm. because i can't imagine I mean all the songs in this movie are pretty Oscar worthy but I think Under the Sea is probably the best one it is probably the most iconic song from this movie and most iconic but like I think Poor Unfortunate Souls is honestly the best song from this movie like I don't know it's just like the theatrics behind it and everything because like there's like the swirling and like all of like Ursula's kind of like conniving things that she does and then like Ariel like looking away as she like mm-hmm. signs stuff I don't know I just I felt like it was like also it was so much later in the film that I realized like I don't know why but like I thought Ariel lost her voice so early in the movie same here I was gonna touch on that like later but Ariel really she I think she's silent for less of the film than she talks I, like, think, I think she's so talks too. for more of the film <laughs> It's so weird. I mean, some songs are weaker than others, obviously. Um, yeah. but there's the the soundtrack is slaps, and this it was the soundtrack itself was a commercial success. The soundtrack went double platinum within a year of release, and as of today, it has been certified six times platinum, which for a movie soundtrack is kind of incredible because you don't really get that. I think the most recent I should have checked, but I'm sure Frozen got something like that because I think that was like the first soundtrack to hit number one in the Billboard charts and forever but yeah it's kind of you don't really get that with movie soundtracks to get like massive commercial success that this did that's so crazy I like I'm learning so much about one of my favorite films like ever and to like imagine because like I feel like every song in this movie is super iconic Mm -hmm. but like I like I guess like I I wasn't thinking like in the early 90s like we were gonna have like a soundtrack hit like get like platinum I don't know I guess yeah no I mean this it's between this Lion King and Frozen as the most iconic Disney soundtrack for the 90s yeah it's between this and Lion King as like the definitive Disney soundtrack because for other Disney movies you get like the one or two hit songs that are like played everywhere but this one like every song is like included in like the Disney medleys and like stage shows and fireworks shows it really is like 
it's an it's an iconic soundtrack so not only was this film a success at the box office it was a success at the home video market as well and kind of made disney change its entire home release strategy Prior to the 90s, Disney did not release its films on home video, more or less, especially not its animated films. They usually saved them for theatrical re-releases every few years, like four or so years, and they still were successes. Like a major release of a Disney film was always a major event and kind of did a lot to give these films a prestige in a way. That's kind of how the concept of the Disney vault formed by these films kind of going away for a few years and then re-releasing in theaters. But then in the 90s is when Michael Eisner and the team at Disney decided to experiment more with home video releases, but of course not like the major ones like Snow White, Cinderella, all that, but more like lesser titles, quote unquote, like Pinocchio or Alice in Wonderland. And those were major hits. They sold out immediately after being released. They decided to experiment a bit with Little Mermaid in releasing it on home video only six months after its release, which was unusual and kind of a controversial choice at first. It was not only profitable, it was a massive success. It became the top-selling home video title of that year, and it prompted Disney to opt for shorter release windows for all of its animated films moving forward. And I think that kind of helped the Disney renaissance become what it was. I think that's kind of helped make all those 90s films so popular is the fact that they were available on home video like right out the gate yeah it's crazy to think of a world where like these films just were kind of locked away especially in a post disney plus world where all those films are just available to watch at any point but wild to think that like this was how disney operated just only 30 or so years ago was just hiding these films away before releasing them in theaters and some of them just never even touching home video Yeah. And it's like crazy to also think about because like we started this podcast off talking about we grew up with VHS tapes Mm -hmm. and like these of these films, right? We never didn't have access to it. So I guess like in our lifetime, we've never even had the opportunity to know a life without being able to watch our favorite Disney movie kind of thing. Yeah, definitely. I mean, kind of, we kind of saw it in the way that like these videos were released on home video only for a limited time before going back into the vault where we pull these films out of. But yeah, it's, I mean, like, like I said, especially post Disney Plus that all these films are just there and available at any time. That's honestly part of the reason why I made this is because you, these movies are more accessible than they ever have been before. Mm-hmm. Exactly. As we'll touch on at the end of this, um, The Little Mermaid was a full-on phenomenon and not only saved Disney's animation department, it ushered in a new era of prestige and acclaim for the studio known as the Disney Renaissance. This film basically gave a second life to a studio that was on its dying breath and much like the Phoenix, it rose from the ashes and became something greater and it just, it set the template for Disney movies moving forward. Like there's no way around it. Like this film is what saved Disney animation. I admit that in the past I've been a nasty. They weren't kidding when they called me well a witch. But you'll find that nowadays I've mended all my ways. Repented, seen the light and made a switch. True, yes. And I fortunately know Okay, so now that we've gone over the history of the film, it's time to talk about the film itself. And I know you wanted to kind of compare and contrast this to the original fairy tale because they are quite different in many ways. I mean, I, I've read the original story, so like I I mean I know what happens to it. It's it's not a happy tale at all. But uh you want to go a little more in depth on that. Yeah, so I mean, like, before I watched the film, again, uh, I read through, essentially, Hans Christian Andersen's story, and they actually start off pretty similarly. It's just, like, this kind of, like, family of people under the sea, and it talks about the fact that, like, once they reach a certain age, right, like, the mermaids reach a certain age, they're able to go up to the top of the surface and see, like, what the human world is like, and essentially Ariel well I guess actually in like the in the fairy tale uh it's the little mermaid so Mm -hmm. everything is the little mermaid and and the sea witch so like there's no names um obviously we associate like the sea witch with being Ursula and the little mermaid with being Ariel but I was gonna say there's um there's like similarities and differences 
the biggest difference I don't know should I just like ruin it right now I think I mean I feel like at this point it's kind of it's kind of infamous that she dies at the end like I think everyone kind of knows that at this point and yeah because like obviously when we see the film it's this kind of like orb that comes from her vocal box Mm -hmm. that uh, Ursula takes but in the original like the story Ursula not Ursula the sea sea witch cuts yep. the little mermaid's tongue out so like she doesn't have the opportunity to talk mm-hmm. so it's like she could like mm, right but she like couldn't like actually talk yeah. to the the prince and so like she falls in love with the prince right and it's actually like pretty similar in that the prince wakes up but it's not Ariel that he sees like he he doesn't know who it is kind yes. of thing and in the original version he essentially like falls in love with this other maiden and then it this maiden turns out to be a princess so he's like well I can't be with you little mermaid because (laughs) this is a princess (laughs) yeah of course he doesn't know that the mermaid saved him and the same thing happens in the actual like film right because he's not sure and then he's associating it with her voice not with like her face kind of thing and then like at the end essentially like the Little Mermaid is really sad and like she wants to kind of kill the prince so that her sisters bring this dagger from the sea witch and they're like if you stab him in the heart his blood touches your feet it'll turn you back into a mermaid and you'll be able to come live with us and it actually it's a pretty happy ending I mean it's not a happy ending obviously but like she finds out that there is an afterlife to mer people. So this is like all kind of like in the original story, her her what was it her grandma, I think, was like, there's no soul to mer people. You don't get to live forever. You like get to live 300 years as a mer person and then you die and like that's it. But she finds out by essentially doing this kind act of not killing the prince, like tossing that dagger into the water, jumping into the water, becoming sea foam. She finds out that she actually has a soul because she did something good. And then mm-hmm. she gets to like be in the winds. Her soul gets to like live forever in the winds and stuff. And I thought that that was a super nice ending to something that was so dark. Yeah. Like, cause you're like, not really sure. And then I like read like a whole introspective of it of like looking in and like thinking deeply of like what does this mean and everything and to me like I'm not really thinking about the in-depth of it it's just like interesting to think like mer people don't have a soul unless they I don't know I guess they unless they do something good but that's like religion 101 like be a good person and you go to heaven or whatever like the alternative of the afterlife is I don't know if it's necessarily a religious theme but it is how that kind of an element yeah and like I think people focus more on the fact that, oh, did you know that the Little Mermaid dies at the end? And and yes, she does die, but it is like, it's on her own terms. Like she's like, like she is at a way at peace. It's a comfort for her. Like she is fine. She's accepting of this. It, it's not like just some, tra- it is a tragedy in a way, but it's mm-hmm. like, it's not this tragic death. Like she's dying heartbroken and just in misery. Yeah, yeah. I think at the end, the way that like Hans Christian Andersen wrote it, it seemed like she was happy that the prince and the princess were, I mean, not like happy, right? But like yeah. she was kind of content with the fact that like she wasn't going to be with the prince. And yeah. then she was like, okay, I would rather just turn into sea foam than kill someone. Something also like I find interesting is that being a human for The Little Mermaid is kind of torture because every time she steps, it's like, daggers are just pointing into her feet it's literally it's like hurts her and pain it's like a painful experience to be human like she is giving so much up to be human like she has to cut her tongue out and like her living existence is like just painful like it's not it's hard she like puts herself through hell for love in a way does and I mean honestly like I think that that's pretty consistent with both the the story and the film. Not mm-hmm. saying like they indicate that Ariel like has daggers in her feet or anything yeah. like that. She, I don't know. She she's unable to speak. Mm-hmm. She just has no way of like communicating. It's kind of a bit devastating. But they they almost feed her fish. Yeah. Like <laughs> it's like I mean she's not having the greatest time here. No. <laughs> 
it's very much stranger in a strange land. Obviously, it's much played from like more comedic value because it is a children's movie. But I just think the act of not being able to speak at all is kind of its own little type of horror. You have thoughts that you literally can't express. Like you're Mm -hmm. just you are trapped in your own head. I also kind of going off that it is interesting how they took this sea witch character when the story isn't really she's not an important character in a way like she really is just kind of just there as a plot device like she really has no stakes at all and they took this character and I think I mean obviously now because Little Mermaid the Disney version has become the dominant way we see this story she doesn't show up again she only shows up casually and by mention like she's just some neutral third party who just she's a conduit for Ariel to become human Mm -hmm. yep I mean, obviously, when it comes to Disney, they need a villain, right? So, like, we have our princess, and then who's going to be our villain? And I guess, I don't know, like, in the story, in my opinion, the sea witch is not a villain. She just, like you're saying, she's just this path that Ariel Mm -hmm. kind of has to have to get to being a human. And then it's kind of funny that you bring that up, right? Because Ursula is so freaking iconic. So it's like to imagine her not being like a significant part of this film it just it doesn't make any sense anymore and any film in general you need some kind of antagonist and of all if you were gonna adapt the story I mean it's the clearest person to turn into an antagonist unless you make a whole new character which kind of doesn't make any sense and Ursula is one of Disney's best villains ever and I just want to give a quick shout out to Jody Benson as Vanessa who is severely underrated I she gets like five minutes of dialogue total but she completely sells being evil and I wish kind of wish we get to see more of her being evil I know I I love her as Vanessa it's just I also like I don't know why but I love the animation of Vanessa like she's yeah. so beautiful but she's dark right so she's got mm-hmm. that kind of like creepy Ursula vibe to her also, the the scene where uh, Vanessa's looking into like the uh, into the mirror, and you have yeah. uh, Ursula on the other side. One of my favorite scenes yeah. in the entire film because I mean, obviously, you can do that with animation, right? Mm-hmm. But like, if you like were to like think live action, it's just so she's got her like creepy self, but like her mirror still shows like the real true Ursula. Yeah, I think like Ursula's Vanessa is very much a early style of Disney villain kind of evokes uh, villains like the evil queen from Snow White and Maleficent who like aren't over the top they're very like calculated and more scheming and they're kind of like low-key and I I mean I think in general it's probably more fun to like animate and voice a villain than it is to voice a protagonist because as a protagonist you have to like kind of stick to this not necessarily cut and dry but like with the villain you're you're given more freedom to kind of act out and it is a type of villain we haven't, we don't really see anymore from Disney. I mean, the 90s villains were m- very much more over the top, whether it was like the campy style, like Ursula, or like you're going to burn in hell style that Frodo was. But the villains like the evil Queen of Maleficent and even like the evil stepmother, they are very much more low key and they're more manipulative and kind of just like sneakily evil, like not in your face overtly evil. I mean, one, it gave Jodie Benson more to do in this film because she's just silent for the entire like back half. And it does allow her to kind of switch it up, switch up her performance in a way that's really fun. Yeah. And it like shows her range of being able to like express herself. Yeah. Speaking of animation, I just want to give a shout to really how beautiful this film is. And I think it does show the strength of 2D animation because I just can't picture how a film like this would look in 3D. I mean, I'm sure it would probably look great, but like I think this is just like shows the artistry of what 2D animation can accomplish. And I mean, it is kind of a tragedy that we aren't really able to get more 2D animated films, especially at least from like major studios like Disney, because these films are obviously still popular even nowadays, but for some reason, people just don't want to see new 2D animated films in theaters. And I just think a film like this just shows how much of an artistry there is. And not to say there's not an artistry to making 3D films, because there obviously clearly is, but I think it's its own medium that offers its own strength and artistry. Yeah, I agree. I think that this film is beautiful I think the animation style is incredible and like just everything about it and like there's things that that I liked a lot about the hair like they did Mm -hmm. certain 
thing. So, right, like her hair under the water is different than her hair yeah. um, on land. So I thought that that was a really great part of it that they like considered. They actually like considered a lot of how things are naturally different under yeah. the sea and then on land. Yeah, something that I always noticed was how Ursula looked. Her hair, like when she was on land, it wasn't up. It was like mm-hmm. kind of shifted down. And I feel like that's something you kind of, a little small details you kind of miss out on when you make that transition from 2D to 3D. Yeah, I agree. I also think this film is surprisingly fast paced. I mean, it's not like a long movie. It's like an hour, 20 minutes, something like that. But it moves, it zips along. And like we said earlier, like Ariel doesn't become human till like pretty deep into the film. Like I, I, I thought it happened a lot earlier than it did, but she really is a mermaid for a good chunk of this. And it's really only like the back end of the movie where she is silent and has her human legs. And I just think it's just a testament to how well paced this movie is especially with regards to like its musical numbers mm-hmm. yeah uh definitely and it so the the pace i i definitely noted that and i think the biggest thing that you and i keep pointing on is the fact that we thought that she was voiceless for so much longer mm-hmm. than she is and i think that that just kind of like is maybe just the play on our memory of like yeah. we associate this film with ariel losing her voice so in our minds it's like it had to have been a majority of the, the film when it turns out to be maybe like 20 minutes of the yeah. entire film um and a lot happens before she even goes up to the surface mm-hmm. right then she right she saves uh, Prince Eric and then she's like well I'm in love with him dad like (laughs) I want to get back up so it's just I don't know I I guess like I didn't realize how much her character develops before she even goes up to the surface and then how fast she develops from kind of like saving Prince Eric to like meeting him again when she lost her voice yeah I like this film it's just like I mean obviously has flaws but it is it it's still amazing just how much it holds up to this day and I feel like the time has come to talk about is Ariel a strong and good character because that debate comes up all the time with people like with Ariel if Ariel's a good role model is she a good character does she even do anything in this film and I'd argue that she is like she does a lot in this film like she knows what she wants she is headstrong she is reckless she is rebellious I mean yes she just she sees a man and falls in love with him but it's a fairy tale whatever like she's not just like willing to just stand by and let things happen I mean kind of it kind of happens when she goes in the human world but that's just by she's in an unfamiliar spot and I w- I do wish she got to be the one to defeat Ursula at the end but I do think she does I think she deserves a little bit more credit than she's given I actually had no idea that this was a discussion that happens because I just automatically thought that she was a strong character because the the main points that you just brought up she is independent she knows exactly what she wants I mean I know she's 16 in the film but like when I was 16 I kind of knew what I want I mean I didn't know exactly what I wanted but like at 16 you're old enough to like make a decision about your life kind of thing and I think that like yeah I mean I I think that she she makes decisions based on what she wants and that's kind of like her goal is to be able to meet the prince again in a fall and I don't know it was a success right like she got the guy so yeah I've seen arguments saying like she doesn't learn anything she I mean and I can see that she really all the stuff that bad stuff that happens is her fault and she kind of doesn't really get any sort of punishment for that but I mean it's a it's a fairy tale and and you're right like when you're 16 you think you know everything you think mm-hmm. you are the smartest person when you are 16 when you are clearly not and when you have a character of like a film or tv show you forget that these characters ages sometimes and I think mm-hmm. that is a trapping. I think Ariel's important step in the Disney Princess pantheon because she is a sort of way a middle ground between the original Disney princesses, Snow White, Cinderella, Sleeping Beauty, who I mean, I still argue are strong characters, especially Cinderella, like they are characters who are strong and not just sit back and let things happen to them. But she's a good middle ground between them and the more like independent princesses we get at the end of the 90s and in the 2000s with characters like Mulan, Tiana, Merida. She is kind of like a middle ground and a stepping stone for the evolution of the Disney princesses. 
most of the Disney princesses are around the same age, right? So like, yeah. it's kind of interesting to see. I think it's like partially impacted just by like how society was as we yeah. like consider like when Cinderella was released, when Snow White was released. And then when we like come into like the 80s and 90s and like, obviously women are becoming more independent. And then now like in the 2010s into like the 2020s, we're extremely independent and we have films that are like female based right mm-hmm. so like it's like we have frozen where the two main lead characters are women and like they're yeah. princesses and, well i mean queen so it's definitely interesting to see how it goes from kind of like cinderella and sleeping beauty and snow white where it's just like this damsel in distress to like tangled where rapunzel literally goes out and adventures on her own yeah I mean, not, I guess not totally on her own, but. Yeah, but I mean, she's, she is very much a, I mean, I, I think Rapunzel is very much in the aerial vein who is like headstrong and mm-hmm. goes after what she wants and knows what she wants and does it. And yeah. And I think it's like this argument because I think, I think it was more prevalent when like there were less prominent female characters, but like, there's not one type of way to be like, of like a strong character. Who's a woman. Like you, mm-hmm. you can be like, a dainty princess and be a strong character like I was watching Cinderella earlier and I think she is because you have to have strength to put up with the stuff she deals with in that movie like she I'd argue she is just as like strong as like as like Mulan and just in a different way and yeah her goal is ultimately to find love but I mean that's what some women want like they do want to find love and that's not necessarily a bad thing and she she's willing to risk everything for it and I do think that there is like some sort of there is like a sort of strength in that yeah yeah no I'm not saying that anyone any of like the early princesses aren't strong characters I think they all are mm-hmm. yeah. I just think it's interesting to see the the progression of yeah. like how we made their their princesses oh yeah no I, I definitely wasn't going at that at you for that point kind of because I I mean I feel like the Disney princesses as a brand as a whole kind of get criticized I mean sometimes fairly but other times I think unfairly yeah yeah no I I totally agree I mean I can see both sides of whether Ariel is a strong character or not but I don't always feel like like you need to learn a lesson in these Mm -hmm. films so like I guess I've never knocked her for the fact that she doesn't really learn anything I mean she does like learn I guess I'm not sure like she 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 like learns to live without her voice and like yeah. I think that, that was like something an obstacle she had to overcome right so. yeah and I I mean yeah and I if you don't like particularly like Ariel's character I think you are entitled to that opinion I think that's valid and like not to say that you're wrong but I do think that she does have some underrated qualities that do make her like a strong protagonist especially sing with me now Great, so now that we've talked about the film itself and our thoughts on it, now it's time to talk about this film's impact, which, to be quite honest, could probably comprise its own podcast so gotta condense it a bit um as mentioned earlier it was a massive success both critically and financially and it ushered in what is known as the disney renaissance which is the a period in the 90s where disney animation basically dominated the film industry and the next four films especially after the little mermaid just built on its success and became even bigger successes and films that followed included beauty and the beast aladdin and lion king which all did better than little mermaid even little mermaid at the box office and The film saved Disney animation and set forward the template, as we mentioned countless times. It basically sent the template for the Disney animated film moving forward. And based off the success of this film, obviously, The Little Mermaid became a franchise. Ariel is one of the core members of the popular Disney princess line, which encompasses toys, soundtracks, games, costumes, etc., etc. Like she is one of Disney's most popular and iconic characters and most heavily merchandised characters, of course. Like a number of Disney films in the 90s and early 2000s, it received direct-to-video follow-ups, including a sequel, The Little Mermaid 2, Return to the Sea in 2000, where you meet Ariel's daughter, Melody, who faces off against Ursula's sister, I don't know her name, and a prequel, The Little Mermaid, Ariel's Beginning in 2008, which answers the question that everyone had, why King Triton hated humans, because that's just what we wanted. 
I've seen both. I don't like both. I don't know if you like both. They're so bad. I don't like either of them. I just, I remember Mermaid 2 came out and I was like, oh, okay. Like I like The Little Mermaid. Obviously it was in 2000, so we were only four. But like, I don't know. I remember watching it also like a little later in my life again. And I was like, this is so bad. I mean, I feel like there's a lot of nostalgia for these direct-to-video prequels but um, and sequels, but they most of them don't hold up. Um, I'd say only one of these, the direct-to-video sequels, period, hold up, and that is Cinderella 3, A Twist in Time, the iconic film that I think everyone should watch, but that's its own podcast. You can and talk about Lion King 1.5. One in, Lion one King 1.5. <laughs> I I don't I tr- I honestly don't think I've seen that movie at all. Have it? <laughs> you got to get through it one of these days. I maybe that'll be the next one we do together. Next one of these we do. Yeah, Lion King one and a half. Um, <laughs> it also got a TV show in 1992, which also served as a prequel to the film, and it ran for three seasons. I have seen episodes here and there, and. It, it's fine, I guess. All of these are on Disney Plus. So if you ever get the urge to just watch The Little Mermaid or to immerse yourself in the Little Mermaid cinematic universe, you can just go on Disney Plus and watch them. Oh my gosh. And for a film that was so successful and so beloved, its theme park presence is surprisingly slim. Obviously, you can meet Ariel at all the parks worldwide, either by herself in her grotto and her mermaid form or with the different Disney princesses in her traditional ball gown. But it didn't get a dedicated dark ride to itself until 2011, though um, there have been many attempts to get a ride off the ground as early as the 90s. One of the, my favorite things about the Little Mermaid special edition DVD was that you got to watch this like ride mock-up of this proposed Little Mermaid ride. It was really cool. There's no way it would have been built because it's like multi-story, like it goes down and to a second floor and goes up. There are giant figures of like Ursula it would have just been a budgetary nightmare but mm-hmm. I think it's really cool to watch of what what could have been so we have Ariel's Undersea Adventure which can be found in both Disneyland and Disney World and it is a ride that I think is completely and totally fine there are a lot of animatronics and it's basically just goes through the songs of the movie but by doing that you do skip over significant chunks of the story it's a it's a very weird ride you have been on this ride right I think so, right? It's the seashell one. Yes. Like you ride in the seashell and you literally just like go on like and then you like turn a little bit mm-hmm. and like there's like animatronics around you. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that it was kind of a bland ride. Yeah. Like you don't really do anything on it. There's nothing like exciting about the no. <laughs> Ariel Under the Sea Adventure ride. Yeah, I think... I think that Saving Grace is like the Ursula animatronic, which is legitimately one of Disney's best animatronics, but... Besides that, it's it's like not a bad ride. It's inoffensive. It's it never has a line, so it's a good way to kill time and like sit down. But it is a little disappointing considering it is one of Disney's most popular films. But whatever. It also does it have its own dedicated land in the Tokyo Disney Sea Park, which of course is in Japan, called Mermaid Lagoon. It is a fully indoor section of the park and is geared towards young children, so it's not going to be anything like blow your socks off amazing. Though Tokyo Disney Sea is a beautifully wonderfully themed park and anything there is probably going to be better than something in I don't know Disney's Hollywood Studios at this point Disney uses theme parks to just throw its IP and its films at you so it's kind of interesting that it took so long to get one a little mermaid ride and just that's all that's so crazy yeah And as of this podcast recording, Disney is currently filming a live action remake of The Little Mermaid because there is no animated film that Disney has made that it will not make a remake of. Directed by Rob Marshall, who has made films such as Chicago and Mary Poppins Returns. And the cast includes Halle Bailey as Ariel, Melissa McCarthy as Ursula, David Diggs as Sebastian, and Aquafina as Scuttle, who in this film will apparently I think I read will be imagined as a diving bird so she'll be able to like partake in more of the the underwater scenes I don't know if that's been confirmed or not but that's interesting I guess I mean when you got Aquafina you got to give Scuttle a bigger role I don't know Scuttle has a pretty big role I know I guess they just I mean they they want to get the Aquafina money they want to make the most of it yeah I guess I can see that 
this film did encounter a small backlash when they announced the casting of Halle Bailey as Ariel because Halle Bailey is a black actress and not the traditional white skinned red haired Ariel that we see in the animated film but Disney has stood by their choice and I think I mean there's still people who are like not my Ariel but I mean they're giving Halle Bailey red hair I mean like she has a wig for it she does yeah I think so I swear I saw her in like a red wig for it. Maybe they Maybe. are. Maybe. I haven't seen anything from filming or anything Um, because filming just, I've, as far as I know, filming just started back in January because it was supposed to start in 2020, but it got delayed because of the COVID-19 pandemic and then scheduling conflicts with Melissa McCarthy's schedule because she is a quite a busy actress. And it just finally started in January of this year. We haven't seen any official stills or footage or anything. Like, around the time that they, like, uh, like officially, like, were, like, we're gonna make this. Um, yeah. Using, like, the, the, like, kind of timeline of it. But I don't know. I I I honestly would prefer if, like, they kept Halle Bailey's just natural hair. Like, yeah. I that her hair is super representative. We'll see. I mean, again, the filming just started. So we're probably not going to see this film until, like, 2022, 23. And nothing official has been released from the film yet except the cast. But we do know that Alan Menken is returning to write new songs for the film along with Hamilton creator Lin-Manuel Miranda. Obviously, nothing's confirmed until it's released, but I think Alan Menken said he wrote five new songs for the film, including a song for Eric, a duet between Ariel and Eric, and new songs for Scuttle and King Triton. So we'll see more we'll see what this is i i've been on record as saying i'm not a fan of these live action remakes but i am fascinated by what this film possibly could be and what it could look like because i just cannot fathom this film in my head what it could possibly look like and i'm i mean i am on board for halle bailey as ariel because i'm a big fan of her and her music but again i just i don't know how a film like this is gonna work in live action so I I truly am excited to see what they're going to do to this movie yeah I mean I have no idea (laughs) these live action remakes have been terrible so my nerves are bad because this is my favorite this is literally my favorite so like they (laughs) get up I'm gonna be like oh I don't know if I'm supposed to swear but we may have to edit that out (laughs) at least for these first few episodes I want to we want the family audience in we'll give it like 10 well, episodes or so <laughs> if they messed it up I don't know it's it's just gonna be like kind of disappointing I guess we'll see what happens I'm not gonna go into it thinking they messed it up yeah I'm gonna go in with full <laughs> bright eyes thinking it's gonna be amazing yeah I've never I, I never go into these movies expecting the worst I did with Mulan <laughs> I was excited no see I was excited for Mulan and then the movie came out and was very bad and I was very disappointed by it the thing about these live action remakes is like they never replace the animated film like they you never see like I mean sometimes you see merch for the live action ones but you never when Disney has these films that have been remade when they have representations of them it's still the animated versions like they're still like who's on the merch who the characters you meet and all that so I don't I think I mean yes these these remakes make a lot of money but I I these films don't really like last in the way that the animated ones do yeah I agree I am rooting for this film because I just, I, like I said, I just mostly because I like Halle Bailey so much. I want her to get a good movie. And I, I, I usually am more optimistic with these movies from better or worse. Um, Like I said, the Mulan one disappointed me to no end. They're still going to make them. They're still making money. So we'll just, we'll see how this film turns out. Who knows? Maybe in the year 2025, if whenever movie theaters open again, we will do a podcast on the live action Little Mermaid. Yeah, we'll see what happens. I mean, they chose two really impressive um, singers. So like Halle Bailey and David Diggs. Yes, I yeah, I mean, the I think it's a good cast. I mean, Melissa McCarthy as Ursula. I, I, I don't know how I feel about that, but you know, she's, she's a, I mean, she is a great actress. Don't get me wrong. She's a phenomenal actress. I mean, she's been nominated for two Oscars, so she's she not. She also a- has a good range, you know? Yeah. So I know like a lot of people associate her with like just being that kind of like funny side character. The bridesmaids. Like, bridesmaids, yeah. But like, she actually does have like serious oh, yeah. roles and like, I, 
I think I've never heard her sing though. So yeah, I that's I, I she I, yeah she is a very good actress, and I mean also Aqu- I I I love Aquafina, but like she has made songs before. But it'll be interesting to see, especially if she is given a song. I I'm interested. I think this is the live action remake I'm most interested in, just mm-hmm. because I don't know what to expect from it, and who knows? Like, well, we've we've still got a while before it comes out. Yeah, a couple of years maybe. I don't know. I guess we'll see what happens. That about does it for this episode of the Disney Vault cast. Uh, is there anything you would like to plug, Amber, before we say goodbye? <laughs> uh, go read my scientific papers. <laughs> you under, heard her. It's under Amber Mori, MSC. Because you're not on social media or anything. And I mean, you are, but you, I'm sure you don't want to broadcast that to the world. I like recently got rid of several of my accounts, so... <laughs> Maybe it's for the best. Yeah, I don't know. A lot of this like media I've been consuming has not been healthy. So I got off of it because like I needed to not have bad mental health. Yeah, that's I mean, that's fair, especially with the world we live in, I, the hellscape we're in. It's probably for the best. But, you know, I got a I got a show to promote now. So I got to stay on the hellscape. <laughs> yeah, you do. You got to you got to <laughs> just like, you know, be, be careful of what you're consuming. Yes, that's a cautionary tale to end this podcast on a cautionary note. Be careful (laughs) on social media. Everyone should know that, hopefully. Yes. As for me, you can follow me on said hellscape that is Twitter at Aiden Simons. You can follow this show at Disney Vaultcast. We might have an Instagram by this point. I don't know. If we do, it'll also be at Disney Vaultcast. Hopefully, I don't see why that domain would be taken. And that is all for this week so thank you for watching be sure to rate us five stars on itunes because we deserve it and i will see you next week bye